Hi, I'm Sarah Schweig at the Center for Court Innovation, and today I'm speaking with Dr. David Adams. Dr. Adams is co-founder and co-director of Emerge, the first counseling program in the nation for men who abuse women. He is one of the nation's leading experts on men who batter and has conducted trainings for social service and criminal justice professionals in 46 states and 18 nations. Dr. Adams has also conducted outreach to victims of abuse for 35 years. Thanks for speaking with me today. Thank you. Could you give us a little background about the kind of counseling you do? What kinds of issues does counseling, um, in this case, seek to address? And is there a kind of model you use or a promising practice? Well, I mean, first of all, it's, it's all groups. Um, and secondly, uh, the model that we use is, is male-female co-facilitated. And, and the reason we do that is that we, we really want to provide a role modeling opportunity for um, the abusive men uh, to see women and men working together cooperatively and sharing leadership. Our program is divided into two phases. There's an educational phase, which is the first eight weeks, uh, where they're exposed to just really basic information about what is abusive behavior, broadening their understanding that it's not just illegal behavior, how does it affect their partner, how does it affect their children, uh, what are alternatives, and so forth. But then the more interesting phase, you know, the second phase, which is the remaining uh, 32 weeks, is more of an interactive group. And that's where we're a little different uh, as a model from um, other kinds of programs because we're a psychoeducational model, not just an educational model, um, which really means that we're able to, to give individualized feedback to the men um, in the program and to really kind of like focus more in depth about each person's um, history uh, of abusive behavior. We actually do a very interesting exercise uh, we call the relationship history where we ask each person 14 questions about every intimate relationship he's had and it's done right in the group. The other men ask the questions and uh, we do another interesting exercise where we really develop very individualized goals for each man in the group and the other men again are very involved in that process making suggestions about what goals you know make sense for that person and so really the whole purpose of the kind of the goal of our program is is to really learn two things one is respect and how is respect communicated in relationships um, not just with your partner but with your children but also empathy uh, too because most abusers are are very kind of have a narcissistic orientation and mm -hmm. so the beginning stages it's really clear that it's difficult for them to sort of see their own behavior from their partner's perspective and so over time we really try to do that we try to build that into the program so that even when men are giving each other feedback in the group we're asking the men to try to see things from the partner's perspective so when a man's reporting an interaction with his partner for instance we're asking all the other men to say okay what do you think his partner's perspective was mm -hmm. in that interaction and in the process there they are learning empathy too uh, because it's easier i think sometimes to to recognize another person's abusive behavior than one's own you know mm -hmm. so that we kind of take advantage of that natural ability that abusers have they they're they're very good at actually spotting other people's abusive behavior not so much their own and so we really kind of teach the men how to give each other constructive feedback and how to kind of hold each other to a higher standard. That's mm -hmm. really kind of the premise of our program. So, as you know, treating domestic violence offenders can be controversial. Some people say that abusers can't be reformed or treated. Can you talk a little bit about 
about how this affects your work and what you've seen and your perspective yeah. on that. Well, I think there's been a lot of misinformation about the outcome studies that have been done, first mm-hmm. of all. And and, uh, and I also think it, it kind of reflects that the outcome that has been done has a very kind of narrow definition of what outcome is, you know, mm-hmm. too, because I always say I'd like to get the same deal that substance abuse programs get because nobody ever questions the value of substance abuse programs, and yet their outcomes aren't any better than ours. Um, and and yet somehow for us to have the same outcomes, you know, we're, there's questioning about, well, are we worth it? And I think that what all of the outcome f- studies have found um, is that Program completers do a lot better than non-completers in terms of, of recidivism. So that that's very reassuring to us because it, 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 just like a substance abuse program, it sort of is a given that, that the more treatment they get, the better they do over time. I think that, however, when you have the expectation, this all-or-nothing expectation, you know, mm-hmm. that do we cure? Because some of the outcome studies have sort of compared program participants with non-participants but even program completions who only get one session, you know, who drop out and reoffend, that counts as a program failure. And that makes no sense because um, he's only had one session. But the other thing is that we feel that we provide a valuable service regardless of the outcome because we provide really useful information to the courts mm-hmm. about his participation, about noncompliance, for instance. And noncompliance is really a big deal because that's a predictor of, of reoffending. We provide really useful information to the partners, to the victims of abuse. And that's a big deal because victims are really trying to make decisions. You know, quite often when he's in the batterers program, you know, do I want to stay in this relationship? Do I want to um, maybe curtail his access to the children? And so they're hearing back from us, and if they're hearing back from us, well, you know, he's still minimizing his abusive behavior, or he's still really blaming you. That's really useful, you know, for victims, uh, because we want to make sure that she doesn't just automatically conclude that just because he's in her program, you Mm -hmm. know, that naturally things are going to get better, you know, too. Those are some excellent points about the information sharing, and I wanted to ask about, um, you know, in the court, how your your program sort of comes into play, and as you know, domestic violence court emphasizes holding offenders accountable um, for their abusive behavior. Um, Do you see a tension between accountability and treatment within the court, and how do those concepts sort of fit together? Well, yeah, I think that sometimes accountability is taken to mean punishment. Most of our uh, the men who participate in Emerge, they definitely, when they start our program, think of our program as a part of their punishment. And yet our understanding of accountability is is really much broader than that. It's about recognizing the impact of your behavior on other people, being able to um, to really identify and uh, talk about your abusive behavior, and to make changes. That's all a part of accountability. And so that's very different from punishment. Right. <laughs> you know, some, right. some abusers, they'd love to just be punished, you know, because then they're sort of off the hook. They don't really have to change. Um, so that really accountability is, it, we try to sort of build that into our program so that just the process of having them describe their abusive behavior 
which they would never do on their own. Right. <laughs> right? I mean, yeah. um, and also to put it on record too. I mean, so that you know, it, it really goes back to the court, um, and uh, and so now he is on record as admitting, you know, in, in in detail, some detail, you know, what his abusive behavior is, you know, has been. Another part of the accountability is is being will being willing to to really be open to feedback, you know, too, um, in the program. So. Really, it's it's quite an engaging process. Accountability, you know, it, it, it's more than just punishment. How do you think a justice system can be flexible enough to sort of fit the response to the needs of the offender in terms of sort of redefining accountability in that way? And right. Well, I mean, first of all, we love it when judges do more than just sentence. You know, abusers to programs, but also kind of reinforce the goals of the program, you know, to really kind of say to the defendant, you know, I'm going to sentence you to a program, but I want you to be an active participant in the program. And in fact, I'm going to review your progress you know, um, in the program. And that's one of the great advantages of domestic violence courts is that there's that built into it so that, you know, when, when a person knows that they're going to have to be accountable in that way. They have to go back before the judge, the court, and, and, and kind of review the progress. And they take it more seriously themselves, you know, too. Um, and I think that's just human nature that, that people will do that. So since you established Emerge in 1977, how has working with domestic violence offenders changed? And do any new achievements come to mind or any new complications or challenges that you might want to mention? Well, I, I think it's been a lot of trial and error over the years, and we've learned a lot about really how to engage men. You know, certainly programs have become more culturally relevant, you know, too, over time. Um, and uh, as well as programs specifically geared towards abusers and same-sex relationships, um, too. But I think that in the beginning, I, I think that um, there was kind of a more of a kind of a consciousness raising, um, more of a sort of an emphasis of really only on one set of issues, which was sort of um, gender equality and, and, and more of a kind of a confrontative approach, sort of confronting them about sexist attitudes and so forth. Mm-hmm. And I think what we've learned over time is that that can be really quite alienating to people. And, and really, I think we've kind of replaced that with more of an emphasis on, on respect, because respect is, is more of a, a universal value. And respect definitely plays into gender equality in terms of relationships. And so that we, we sort of try to keep it focused on how much do you respect your individual partner more than, you know, what's your attitude towards women in general. And that also goes back to teaching, you know, teaching empathy, which is That's right. much yeah. more intimate um, yes. experience. So you're also the author of the book, Why Do They Kill Men Who Murder Their Intimate Partners? Um, maybe talk a little bit about how you sought to answer that question and what were some of your findings um, in cases of homicide? Well, I mean, when I started working in that project, uh, there had been a real spike of intimate partner homicides in Massachusetts, so much so that our governor had declared a state of emergency for women. And, and so it really kind of made me curious about what distinguishes 
batterers who kill from those who don't kill. What do we need to know that can really help us to identify these cases in the earlier stages? So I, I did interviews with prisoners that all had killed their intimate partners in Massachusetts. I also did interviews with victims of attempted homicide and, and really identified that there were essentially five different types of killers in terms of their motivations to kill. And, 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 and so I think we need to be better in, in the system at, at identifying those men. Earlier on, flagging those cases, you know, looking at the mental health issue on top of the domestic violence issue. I mean, I think the first really duty in combating terrorism, you know, is is to gather intelligence. And these are domestic terrorists, you know, so that we really need to gather better intelligence about you know, the people that are going to be causing the problem, you know, which is the the, the abusers. Um, Well, that's fascinating. It's been wonderful talking to you. I'm Sarah Schweig, and I've been speaking with Dr. David Adams, co-founder and co-director of Emerge. To learn more about the Center for Court Innovation, please visit www.courtinnovation.org. Thank you for listening.